Baptism and resurrection, sin and grace, death and life, slavery and freedom. It's an episode of Contrasts on the Backdrop for Pomona Valley Church. Welcome to another episode of The Backdrop as we make our way through the book of Romans together. This week we're going to focus on chapter 6, where Paul continues to play with the contrasts that he has already in- introduced in chapter 5 and is going to draw out for the rest of this second section of the book, all the way up through chapter 8. He's basically portraying two options for the Roman Christians as far as where and how they're going to live. Are they going to live in a way that is characterized by sin, death, and slavery? or one characterized by grace, life, and freedom. For Paul, it's not just that this is an obvious choice. Ooh, I picked death! It's that there isn't really a choice to be made at all. Once you are a part of God's family, then all the rest follows from it. N.T. Wright has a helpful analogy, I think, in saying that what Paul is arguing in this section of the book is basically analogous to living in two different countries. If we were to live in Japan versus the United States, for example— that choice would have certain effects that would go with it. In Japan, we would speak Japanese. We would drive on the other side of the road. We would be subject to Japanese laws and customs. And to go on living in Japan as if we were living in the United States would not only be strange, it would put us in conflict with reality and probably would eventually lead us to trouble. When you are living in Japan, you should live as if you are in Japan, not live as if you are somewhere else. In fact, you don't really have much of a choice. Eventually, you're going to have to face reality. That's a similar distinction to what Paul is trying to draw here in these verses. And so we're going to start with the first five verses of chapter six. What are we to say then? Shall we continue in the state of sin so that grace may increase? Certainly not. We died to sin. How can we still live in it? Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into the Messiah Jesus were baptized into his death? That means that we were buried with him through baptism into death. So that, just as the Messiah was raised from the dead through the Father's glory, we too might behave with a new quality of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. This follows on from where we left off in chapter 5, where Paul said that God's solution to the massive problem of sin was to respond with an even more massive amount of grace. But that doesn't mean that we should let sin keep increasing so that grace increases even more. Hey, I'm, I'm just doing you a favor, God, to let you really unleash the grace. You're welcome. This is not just because that would stretch Paul's metaphor beyond the breaking point, <laughs> but that if sin really is the dark ruling power Paul has already portrayed it as, then serving it and serving God are mutually exclusive. You are either living in Japan or in the United States, but at least outside Big Hero 6, San Francisco uh, does not exist. This is what Paul means when he says, we died to sin, how can we still live in it? We've moved, traded in our residence, and living as if we were still in the other place isn't an option anymore. And he uses the symbol of baptism to bring this to life. Baptism is a ritual that signifies death and rebirth. The going under the waters is death, The rising up out of the waters is new life. And when we decide to put our trust in Jesus, this ritual is a way of showing us what is true, that we now belong to Jesus the Messiah. And what is true of him is also somehow true of us. Specifically in this case, that just as he died, 
So we are a part of that death. And just as he was raised to new life, so are we. We don't belong to the old world anymore. And so now we need to act like it. This means that verse 5 is not primarily about our future resurrection, but about the current reality. If we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Our current life right now should be in the likeness of Jesus's resurrection, reflecting where we live and what is true of us now. Paul continues to draw out the implications of this in the following verses. This is what we know. Our old humanity was crucified with the Messiah so that the solidarity of sin might be abolished and that we should no longer be enslaved to sin. A person who has died, you see, has been declared free from all charges of sin. But if we have died with the Messiah, we believe that we shall live with him. We know that the Messiah, having been raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has any authority over him. That death he died, you see, he died to sin once and only once. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, you too must calculate yourselves as being dead to sin and alive to God in the Messiah, Jesus. In these verses, Paul adds a new layer to the image, talking about slavery to sin. This is also a callback to the problem Paul sketched out in the opening chapters of Romans, where he portrays all as being under the power of sin, of being in solidarity with it in opposition to what God is doing in the world. This was the reality, the problem, to which Jesus' death and resurrection are the solution. And as was the case in those opening chapters, Paul is not contrasting a physical part of us, bad, with a spiritual part, good, but is rather contrasting the whole human person being in solidarity with sin and the whole human person in solidarity with Jesus. In our baptism, we see the reality that we have left the world that is characterized by sin for good. We have joined up with Jesus instead. And so, again, what is true for him is also true for us. Sin and death no longer have authority over us because we are alive in Jesus. Paul also brings another biblical story into the picture by bringing up the image of slavery. And that is the dominant story of the Old Testament, the Exodus. It might not seem obvious to us now, but there's just no way a first century Jew could hear someone talking about God setting God's people free from slavery and not hear Exodus blaring out from the background. And Paul is going to build on this in the chapters to come, that what God has done in setting God's people free from slavery to sin, is of a piece with what God did then in setting God's people free from slavery in Egypt. And just as we can read the Exodus story and think how ridiculous it is that the people grumbled and complained and wanted to return to slavery in Egypt, so it's ridiculous for the followers of Jesus to show by their actions a desire to return to being enslaved to sin. You are free, Paul is saying. Act like it. Paul closes these verses with what is basically an accounting metaphor. Calculate yourselves as being dead to sin. Add it up. See what's true. And just as sure as two plus two equals four, so identifying with Jesus in his death and resurrection means that we are free from sin. And in the next verses, Paul gets to what this means in practice. Since we've added up the sum and calculated what is true, what then does that mean? This is verses 12 to 14. So don't allow sin to rule in your mortal body to make you obey its desires. 
nor should you present your limbs and organs to sin to be used for its wicked purposes. Rather, present yourselves to God as people alive from the dead, and your limbs and organs to God to be used for the righteous purposes of his covenant. Sin won't actually rule over you, you see, since you are not under law, but under grace. Paul's point here is not so much that a Christian should never do anything wrong, ever, or else that's evidence that they aren't real Christians or something. The image of presenting oneself to one or another thing is a question of which master we are serving. Is it sin, which has only evil purposes, or is it God, who intends to use our bodies for the righteous purposes of his covenant, meaning for the goal of remaking the world so that it aligns with God's goodness and justice, just as God promised, covenanted to do. To consistently live in such a way that aligns with sin, not God, is to act as if sin is still ruling over us when we're no longer under its power, but are instead, as Paul says, under grace. It would be as if the Israelites kept showing up for brickmaking duty at sunrise when God had already set them free from Pharaoh's authority. Sin exists, yes, it is a force to be reckoned with, but it has no real power over the one who puts their trust in Jesus. Paul seems to be drawing a distinction between presenting ourselves to sin, which is impossible since our selves have died with Jesus, and presenting our limbs and organs, our body parts, to sin, to act as if we were in the United States when we are, in fact, in Japan. If we are in Japan, it would be impossible for ourselves to actually be in the United States, but it would theoretically be possible, but silly, to act as if we were in the United States. N.T. Wright sums this all up nicely, I think, like this. Paul envisages the various parts of the human body as implements to be used in the service of this master or that. Our limbs and organs, and for that matter, our mind, memory, imagination, emotions, and will, are to be put at the disposal, not of sin, but of God. We are to think and act as people who have come through the river and out the other side. That is, who have died and been raised to new life. We should not miss the powerful implications of this, backed up in more detail at several points in the letter to the Corinthians. What we do in the present time, when we offer our whole selves to God's service, is the beginning of resurrection life. Our present bodies will decay and die, but when we are raised, no doubt to our great surprise, the work we have done in the present, in the service of the new master, will turn out to be part not only of who we are, but of the new world he will have brought into being. This is why Paul keeps talking about why it's important for the Christian to not go on sinning, not because of some prudish moralism, but because when the Christian goes on sinning, they both get in the way of the renewed and beautiful creation God is intending to bring about and prevent themselves from participating in that remaking alongside God and each other. We are getting in the way of God's grand purposes and not getting to participate ourselves. Paul continues from verse 15 to 19. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Certainly not. Don't you know that if you present yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you really are slaves of the one you obey? Whether that happens to be sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to final vindication. Thank God that, Though you were once slaves to sin, you have become obedient from the heart to the pattern of teaching to which we are, you were committed. You were freed from sin, and now you have been enslaved to God's covenant purposes. I'm using a human picture because of your natural human weakness. 
For just as you presented your limbs and organs as slaves to uncleanness and to one degree of lawlessness after another, so now present your limbs and organs as slaves to covenant justice, which leads to holiness. Here, Paul is continuing to talk about the behavior of Christians as opposed to the status of Christians, which is where he began this chapter. Paul's logic is that since our status is what it is, that we've died and been raised with Jesus and therefore have been set free from the power of sin and death, this has implications for our behavior, which is what he's talking about in these verses. Unlike some others of his letters, he doesn't give a lot of specifics here, specific behaviors and things that they need to correct, but is talking more generally about behaviors that align with sin. Christians have often truncated this to just personal morality, usually of the sexual kind. But when the Bible talks about sin, it's talking about any of the many ways we can act contrary to God's character, including greed, violence, selfishness, abusing power, unfaithfulness, lack of care for creation, oppressing the vulnerable, and yes, treating someone else as a body for sex instead of a whole person, to name just a few. Paul adds a little comment in the middle of these verses. I'm using a human picture because of your natural human weakness. I suppose he might be taking a jab at the Romans and how immature they are here, but I think it's more likely he is acknowledging the limitations of the metaphor he's exploring. His point, as N.T. Wright puts it, is that all human existence takes place in slavery to one slave master or the other. But then paradoxically, here's where the metaphor breaks down. One of the slave masters is actually the one who sets you free from slavery. God is a master, but one of a completely different type than sin or than earthly slave masters or kings. And so we need to remember that when we use such words to describe God, they are just as much metaphorical as calling God father. God is not a master. God is not a king. God is not a father, but those can be useful words to capture certain aspects of who God is, which is, of course, what figurative language is for. N.T. Wright uses the image of driving laws to describe what Paul's getting at in these verses. The freedom you enjoy, he writes, when you pass your driving test and have the freedom of the road does not mean that you are free to drive as fast as you like through towns and villages or to drive on the wrong side of the road or to drive on railroad tracks or across fields. With new freedoms, you always get new frameworks. The frameworks constrict one kind of freedom, the freedom to do anything you want, in order to enhance another kind. If everybody drove wherever they pleased, nobody would be free to drive anywhere very much at all. Being a Christian, Wright says, means living from within a particular story. The story of coming out of slavery and into freedom, with all the new puzzles and responsibilities that freedom brings, and that that is the story of the gospel. And this is what Paul is getting at in the final verses of this chapter. Romans 6, starting in verse 20. When you were slaves of sin, you see, you were free in respect of covenant justice. What fruit did you ever have from the things of which you are now ashamed? Their destination is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and enslaved to God, you have fruit for holiness. Its destination is the life of the age to come. The wages paid by sin, you see, are death. But God's free gift is the life of the age to come in the Messiah, Jesus our Lord. Paul is pointing out that you once were free from having to live according to God's character, when you were slaves to sin, that is. And the result was much the same as everybody driving wherever and however they want. The fruit of that wasn't exactly what was promised. 
We've talked about this idea before, so I don't want to belabor it, but we can look at the world around us, the headlines in any newspaper, the trending topics on any Twitter day, and see the fruit of slavery to sin. The result is oppression, injustice, greed, and death. Whatever bright, shiny thing sin promises, security, prosperity, status, the reality is much darker and very much bleaker. Take a look around, Paul says. Remember what that was like. What sort of fruit did that bear for you? As we've often said in these backdrop series, because this is a central theme of the Bible as a whole, choosing to put our trust in idols instead of the true God always leads to injustice and always ultimately leads to death. The road leads where it leads. This is what Paul means by the wages paid by sin are death. Note that it is not the wages you get when you have sinned, that is, the punishment for doing bad things. Paul is here setting up a contrast between the wages that sin pays and the free gift that God gives. If sin is your master, Paul is saying, you get paid what sin has to offer. If God is your master, you freely get life. When you take a look at the check sin gives you at the end of the day, you'll find that your wages aren't exactly what was promised. To mix metaphors here, that road led only to death. But we can trust the promises God makes about the wages that will come from serving them. Joy, abundance, peace, healing, justice, the free gift of life in the age to come when God will have fully restored the world to what it was always meant to be. Paul in this chapter is doing both push and pull, pushing the Romans away from acting as if they were still slaves to sin by showing the truth that comes with aligning ourselves with Jesus and by showing the truth of where the road of sin leads and then pulling them towards acting as if they were servants of God by showing the beauty and goodness that God offers and wants us to participate in. Unlike so many preachers over the years who have apparently been under the impression that the way to get people to live right is to threaten eternal damnation like a spider dangling over a candle flame, Paul seems to think that the better strategy is to remind people of what's true, that they belong to Jesus now, not to sin, and to paint a picture of the goodness available to those who join in with what God is doing in bringing their covenant promises to life. We'll push pause there. It was a short one this episode, <laughs> because while the next section of the letter, including chapter seven, and then the first 11 or so verses of chapter eight, they have enough going on that, that they deserve their own episode. In fact, it is one of the central important sections of the letter. So you got that to look forward to. Unfortunately, the more important sections of this letter often tend to be the most confusing as well, for some reason. Thanks, Paul. Well, anyway, thanks for listening to The Backdrop. I hope it was helpful, and I will see you next time as we go through chapter 7 and then the first 11 verses of chapter 8. Bye!